And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. We're calling today's show, So You Think Your Job Sucks? Gabriel Thompson is a journalist who covers labor and immigration issues, and he writes about both in his new book, Working in the Shadows, a year of doing the jobs most Americans won't do. Gabriel went undercover to do the kind of dirty, low-wage work mostly done by immigrants in this country. He did stoop labor in the lettuce fields of Arizona, processed chicken carcasses at an Alabama poultry plant, and toiled as a poorly paid lackey in New York restaurants and at one very nasty flower shop. And believe me, the flower shop was bad. He'll tell us about his year of living strenuously on this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Stay tuned. So, Gabriel, you call this immersion journalism? Yep, definitely. I call it masochism journalism. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's that, too. Did you know you were in for a lot of suffering? You must have. I did. Um, but at the same time, I think I was also... My curiosity was so piqued that it was kind of, there was the question of, can I do this? And then assuming, yes, I can, what it will be like. Now, there's a long history of um, journalists going undercover into work situations to report on them, at least going back to Upton Sinclair. Yeah, and I, I think, too, George Orwell, I clearly remember reading Down and Out in Paris and London and also The Road to Wigan Pier about going into the coal mines. And both those books and, and The Jungle, I think, had a... a uh, an impact on me wanting to do this. At the time, I didn't necessarily know that, but just having that behind-the-scenes access, unfettered, presents a very uh, intimate portrait of worlds that are mostly unseen. Yeah, and the people who write those stories tend to seem kind of cool and heroic, too. Yeah, well, there's that, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think that's that's one of the, the dangers, too, is you don't want to... I mean, it's a book about me doing a bunch of random things, but you also have to remember that there are folks doing this work year after year with very little fanfare, mm -hmm. you know, so you have to be aware of that. And you pick jobs uh, to try out that are done mostly by immigrants in this country for the simple reason that they're hard and nasty and pay poorly. Yeah, and I think in general I have very little sense of what that work is like. So there's a lot of, a lot of debate about, around immigration. There's a lot of loud voices being broadcast, but not too much closely looking at what it's like on the ground for immigrants uh, at their workplaces. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into the first of the, the very hard jobs you did. Um, you worked as a lechuguero. Yep, a <laughs> lettuce cutter. A lettuce cutter. Uh, one thing I learned very quickly is that I, I was not a lettuce picker because lettuce pickers don't exist. You cut lettuce um, with a knife. And uh, I chose to do that work in Yuma, Arizona, because during the winter months, almost all of the lettuce consumed in the U.S. and Canada is actually coming out of Yuma. In or near the Mojave, yeah? Yeah, it's actually right on the border of California and Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's one of the warmest places in the country. I was there. I remember Warm, when, that's putting it mildly. Well, extremely hot in the summer, but in the winter, even in February, it would hit 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And that's when you did your work. In that's the when I did the work, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, generally, people think about lettuce and they think about Salinas. And that's where most of it comes most of the year. But in the winter, California becomes too cold for lettuce. And so the whole production all shifts to Yuma. Mm -hmm. So if we were to uh, go to the store and buy a head of lettuce, be it iceberg or romaine or whatever, and we looked down at the bottom, we'd see that the, the trunk of it, the stem of it, had been sliced with a knife. Right. Would that would that cut have been made by a guy like like you? Exactly. And actually, right when I finished doing the jobs, I would go into produce aisles of grocery stores and spend ten minutes looking through all the different heads of lettuce and flipping it over and admiring the cuts and and flashing back. I mean, if you went into a grocery store right now, you'd be a guarantee that the lettuce that you're looking at came from the Yuma area. Really. Well, you got yourself hired by Dole, the famous fruit and vegetable company. That, mm -hmm. uh, that ran the particular lettuce operation that you were involved in, where you were a cutter. How did I do that? Well, it wasn't easy in the sense that um, you had to get past some skepticism. Their real concern was that every year a couple of people that looked like me would come into the office looking for work. They'd get them the outfits, they'd put them out on a crew, and with an hour or two hours or maybe a day, 
that person would, would no longer want to be doing it. When you say people who looked like you, you mean Anglos? Yes. You were as rare as a snowflake in the Nevada desert. Yeah, it's not just that I was the only white person in the crew, but I was the only white person that I ever saw in the fields of, of two months of working dozens of fields. And that mm-hmm. includes supervisors. Yeah. You just didn't see it. You yeah. never heard English being spoken. Um, so I definitely stuck out. But it's not that Anglos couldn't get hired. In fact, you were hired pretty quickly. I went in on a Friday, I believe, and on Monday or Tuesday, I was in the fields. You were in the fields. Yep. Okay, so now you're in the fields, and, you know, as everyone, I'm sure, knows, lettuce grows right down on the ground. So tell me what what you have to do to cut this lettuce. Well, you have to stoop over, so it's stoop labor, so you're constantly bending over. I've got an idea. Can can, can I just come over there? I'm going to hold the microphone next to you, and you just show me what it looks like. Yes. Okay. So you, you stoop down with your left hand, you grab the head of lettuce, you get a good, as if you're palming a basketball. With your right hand, you make a stabbing motion to separate the lettuce from the ground. You stand up a little bit and you make another trim to cut off the, the outer leaves. Once you've got that lettuce ready to go, you have bags hanging from your belt. And in one quick motion, you wrap that lettuce into a bag and you place that bag on an extension of the lettuce harvesting machine. That's on the left side. Then you go to the right side, and you do the exact same motion except on the right, and you're twisting back and forth throughout the whole shift with your legs pointed completely forward. So so I noticed a couple of things when you did that reenactment of your days as a lettuce cutter. You talk about stoop labor. I mean, you were bent over, you know, you were bent over double to get to that head of lettuce, and then you moved on to the next one. And uh, how many of these would you do in, in a day? Long day, you do at least 3,000 heads in a shift. 3,000 heads of lettuce. How did you feel during and after that experience? During, you know, my, my feelings are generally this throb needs to go away. How much longer until a 15-minute break? Uh, that first week at the end of each day is really kind of murder. You know, it's, it's hard to sleep. Um, every part of your, your back, your hands, your feet are all sore. But what I learned from one of my coworkers is he was telling me that there's like a five-day rule. You survive the first five days, and you are, you're good to go in some way. That, you know, you could also give up after five days, but if you can get through that five days, it's not going to get any worse, which is kind of what I found out to be true, that your body gets completely broken down, and you have a tolerance for pain that develops. And uh, the pain never goes away, but it becomes more like a constant and you stop paying so much attention to it. Okay, so you're making it sound like maybe it's smooth sailing after that first five days? No, I think it's what, it, what happens after the first five days is you have a new sense of how much pain your body can take, and I think it at least starts seeing plausible that you can do it for a couple more weeks. A couple more weeks. <laughs> then you do it for a couple more weeks, and maybe then you think, maybe I can do it for another 10 days. Um, and then at a certain point you become convinced through probably psychological games that you're not in pain anymore. But what really happens is that you've just accepted a, a, a level of pain as if it's normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll find this with people playing games like, oh, yeah, I feel good right now. And, you know, I'm feeling pretty strong. And actually, you're, you're never feeling strong. I, I remember when I finally stopped after the two months, it took me several weeks before I could shake anyone's hand. It took me more than a month before the numbness in my right foot went away. And then that's when I realized just how much stress farm work puts your body under. How long do people last doing this work? Well, it was it's hard to find people that have been doing it more than like 10 years. You know, you can have a few good years. I think there's there's some ways in, in which it's like analogies of a football player or something. You go in and you have maybe a couple strong years and then you have knee problems and you have back problems and then you and then you're done. So although it's at the opposite end of the pay scale, there are parallels between a professional NFL football player and uh, a lettuce cutter. Mm. Well, speaking of pay scales, what does a, a lettuce cutter make, or what did you make? I made eight thirty-seven an hour. So a little above the national minimum wage. A little above the national minimum wage. In some crews that worked particularly fast that had uh, got paid by piece rate, you could make maybe $15 an hour. Mm. I can't really imagine uh, working that much faster. Uh, I don't know. Some people evidently can, but to me, my body was constantly moving as fast as it possibly could. And that was, I, I just don't think I would have had it in me to work any faster. Mm-hmm. But people burn out, their bodies get broken down, uh, and they can't do it any longer. Um, at that pay scale, 
how far along can they get in life before you know the, the physical toll catches up with them? Well, I'd say I, I met someone who had done it for 12 years, which was pretty impressive. That was one of the longer stints. Typically, what they will do is they will do farm work for a while and then switch to something else. Like maybe they'll do construction or some other type of work. One of the sort of benefits of doing starting with farm work is that everything else seems easy. So I would meet people who said, yeah, I just couldn't kind of hack it in the in uh, lettuce, so then I switched to construction. And it was as if, like, you know, I kind of gave up and I'm doing an easy job in construction because in construction, occasionally you can kind of sit around and talk to people. Lettuce, it's a, it's, there, there is no real break. Mm-hmm. Do people get any benefits in addition to that 837 an hour uh, that they were making on your crew? Yeah, and my crew, it was mostly guest workers, so they did have some benefits um, in Mexico where Dole would help pay for some health care through the Mexican system, which I think was actually very cheap because it was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Most farm workers have zero health care benefits. Most of the times, farm workers are uh, very isolated. They're working in areas where they have very little connection with anything else around them, um, very poor access to health care and things like that. Not even access to bathrooms in many cases. Yeah, it's it's inter- You know, you think about the UFW and a lot of progress be- that has been made with Cesar Chavez. United the, Farm Workers. Uni- yeah, yeah, United Farm Workers. But what I learned in doing some of the research for this book is that there was a lot of movement in the 60s and 70s to improve farm worker conditions. But there isn't that much organizing going on in the fields now. The UFW doesn't have a huge presence anywhere. And so you'll see a lot of the same abuses, lack of clean drinking water, lack of shade, lack of bathroom breaks, uh, happening today just like it happened before. Now, it seemed to me that uh, in your writing about your experience working for Dole picking lettuce or, excuse me, cutting lettuce in, um, in Yuma, Arizona, you thought the company more or less treated people fairly? I mean, aside from the business of low wages and few or no benefits? Yeah, I think that it's it didn't do anything egregiously abusive, mm-hmm. you know, which was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. It was more that the industry, the way this industry functions, they need to have cheap lettuce, right? They're competing against other lettuce companies that are selling lettuce to places like Walmart or to Jack in the Box or whoever. And the way it's structured is they need to get whatever they can, uh, their labor costs down as much as possible. So it wasn't that they're any particularly bad actors. They're just caught in a system in which everything has to be as cheap as possible. But I did not find, a, like the foreman, I actually have respect for the foreman I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean I don't think that farm workers shouldn't be making a lot more money and should have a slower pace and should and that the, the job should be organized in a way that's more healthy for the workers. But, um, yeah, I didn't find the same kind of egregious abuses that I had expected. How does it work out for these people for whom – this might be, you know, a first rung on the economic ladder. They are earning very little money, uh, although that money means a lot more in Mexico than it does in the U.S., especially for these guest workers. These are people right. who come in daily to cut the lettuce and then head back to Mexico. That dollar will get them a lot more. But on the other hand, they're wearing their bodies out right? prematurely. Yeah, I think the way they look at this and I think uh, the way you – the story of immigration is often talked about as someone wanting to get ahead – but what I really find in, in having done this work for the year is that the emphasis is much more on having their kids get ahead. So if they're wearing out their bodies a little bit and they're kind of uh, saving some money, um, if the main purpose is that their kids won't be lettuce cutters, that their kids might have access to uh, a college education and move on to do something else, that really seemed to be the motivating factor. And does something in the range of $8 an hour or in some cases more get them a sufficient, uh, you know, war chest to help their kids make that next leap? In From where they were coming, yes. I mean, a lot of people were coming from central Mexico, so they had migrated. Their migration was within the country from very poor rural central Mexico to the border mm-hmm. to find work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, a story that people don't realize a lot, is that there's a lot of inter intra-country uh, migration. Now that they're making eight some an hour... U.S. dollars, they're really in a position in which they're kind of creating a middle class for themselves in Mexico, in which their kids are going to decent schools and maybe one day could become professors or something in in the border cities. So I think so. Hmm. Now, this is a job, as we said, that only immigrants will do, typically Latin American immigrants. I mean, you saw 
absolute evidence that Americans who tried it washed out within days or weeks. Um, and you were the the only guy around to even be trying it, the only angle around to even be trying it. Um, so you were doing this in, in 2008 before the the real crash of the economy. Do you happen to know if after that there are more Americans getting into to this kind of work? When I spoke to someone from Dole recently, they still said that they hadn't had any uh, white workers coming to, to look for these jobs. So when the complaint is made, often against immigrants, especially illegal immigrants, uh, taking away American jobs, at least in the case of farm work, that's a hard argument to make, I guess, because there really aren't Americans, as, as you told us, who willing to take these jobs. Not that I saw. And it's it's hard to, you know, if you think about what sorts of wages would they need to pay to attract uh, U.S. workers, after having done it for two months, and granted that's not an eternity, it would have to be an incredibly high wage because what it really does as a job is it's a kind of, kind of job where when you finish the end of the day, you don't have the energy to do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the energy to try to raise a family. You don't have the energy to go see a movie or to make dinner. Uh, you have the energy to sort of collapse. And so I think that's a real, that's a real um, sacrifice you'd be making. And I don't know if $25 an hour, if someone paid that, I'm not sure how many people would actually be able to. It sounds good, right? And I would hear stories about people in Yuma, how uh, they decided over the summer they're going to go pick melons in Yuma, and the wages were much higher than they thought. And and they'd they'd come home in a day or two because it was just very foreign, that level of work. It's not just hard work. It's work on a whole different level. You're a beast of burden. I mean, it's just nonstop grinding physical labor. Yeah, and you know... you you think about taking work home with you. In some of my jobs as a journalist or doing different jobs, you come home from work and you still are pondering different ideas about what happened at work. I took nothing home from with me when I'd come from the lettuce fields because you're spent. You've got nothing. You know, you come home and I'd, I'd eat a sandwich and I'd just crash. Mm. Let's talk about the next um, job you took on, which was another hard one but a different kind of hard. You uh, went down south to... Um, Alabama. Russellville? Russellville, yeah. Russellville, Alabama. Sort of rural Alabama. You worked in a poultry processing plant. Yeah, I think... For Pilgrim's Pride? Yep, Pilgrim's Pride. Although the book is a lot about work, I also chose that area because I thought it would be a great way to talk about how Latinos are really transforming a lot of the South. And so it wasn't just about the work in the poultry plant, but it was about how Russellville, using it as kind of a microcosm for all these changes happening across the South... Uh, has or has not reacted well to this large influx of Guatemalan and Mexican immigrants, and they've come specifically to work in this uh, in this chicken uh, slaughterhouse. Yeah, in 1990, the plant opened, and I talked to one of the school administrators, and I asked him about how many Spanish-speaking or Latino students were in the school district in 1990, and he said there was either two or three, and now it's. Uh, more than a third, I believe. So there's a very clear connection between the poultry plant coming in and immigrants coming to town to to find work in the plant. And and, uh, in this particular plant, it wasn't as though it was all immigrants or all Latino immigrants working. There was a mix of people, white, black Americans and Latin American immigrants. Yeah. And that, to me, added a new interesting wrinkle to it, which was that you know, Arizona has a history. Arizona was once part of Mexico. Latinos doing work in agriculture in Arizona is not a new story. They're, they're in many ways very assimilated. But in a place like Alabama, they just don't have that sort of history. And so the workforce was about a third whites, a third blacks, and a third Latino immigrants coming from either Guatemala or uh, Mexico. And I thought it would also present a great way to look at how those groups uh, are, are getting along. And uh, what did you find? Well, I found what I didn't expect to find. I expected to find a lot of animosity, a lot of anger about this notion that immigrants are taking people's jobs. What I discovered was that no one had a sense that jobs were being taken from them because the real difficulty wasn't getting the jobs. The difficulty was surviving the jobs. And I was sort of uh, a perfect example of that. I showed up uh, in Alabama within a week, had a job at the plant. The plant has such high turnover that they will basically hire anyone. I never met someone that said, man, I'm really angry about immigrants being here because they're taking my slot at the chicken plant. What I heard a lot of was, this chicken plant is not a healthy place to work, and we need to improve the conditions. Mm. 
And you also discovered that though it wasn't solely Mexican and Guatemalan immigrants working in the plant, in the hardest, most grueling jobs in the plant, it tended to be disproportionately immigrants. They were the ones who were willing to do it, whereas uh, Americans typically quit. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that the immigrants were like the backbone of the plant. They stayed the longest. They had the and that although there were some American workers that stayed for a while, they generally filtered out pretty quickly. I know I went through an orientation with ten other people that were all English speakers, and within a week, I believe half of them were gone. Within two weeks, I think just about everyone was gone. Uh, and one of the toughest jobs in a plant is on the debone line. The the debone line to to set the stage is you've got these chickens flying past you and you're holding a knife and you're dead making, chickens dead chickens right yeah. uh, carcasses they're not really flying they're actually no. on a conveyor belt right but it, <laughs> the speed makes it look like they're flying past you and uh, your task on the debone line is to make a certain cut specific cut over and over and over again and in the course of a shift you might do that eighteen thousand times. So that was the kind of work that no one wanted to do. And if you looked at the makeup of the workers on the debone line, I'd say 85 to 90% of them were Latino immigrants. Paint us a picture, if you would, of this factory floor that you worked on in this chicken processing plant. The first thing you notice, I think, that it's very cold. It's 40 degrees in there. And you actually wouldn't hear very much because it's so loud that you're wearing earplugs. And as you're walking along, you'll look to left and right, and you'll have these endless rooms filled with people doing all sorts of things that you don't understand, except you see chicken meat flying from one belt to another. You see chicken carcasses being collected in big bins. Uh, you see workers tearing chicken pieces of chicken meat by hand, and you'll see chicken fat flying in people's faces. You also have these uh, chicken carcasses flying around on hooks overhead. And maybe 10 or 15 feet ahead over you. And you're, you're sort of constantly being bombarded with all the, the remnants or the juices or the meats of all these birds. You know, they try to make it as clean as possible, but when you're doing an operation at such a large scale, you have crap everywhere. Yeah, and you say chicken fat seems to coat everything, the floor, everything's slippery. It's, it's incredibly slippery. They give you these overshoes to wear that's supposed to mitigate some of the slipperiness, but... Um, it still often feels like you're on ice just because it's been it's been coated into the into the floor. Now, now uh, I want you to describe a couple of the jobs that you did there. One was simply tearing chicken breasts in half over and over again. Yeah, I was standing on one in front of one line that was moving from my left to my right, and chicken breasts would come from maybe a ten foot long um, belt, drop down with a plop and then start passing me. And my, my mission was to tear each chicken breast in half very, very fast. So one every one, I'd tear one maybe every one or two seconds. Pieces are flying at you very quickly. You've got little pieces of chicken fat on your face, um, on your foreheads, your, your hands are bloody. But within 10 minutes, you're not even thinking of that because you've still got these chicken breasts that are flying by that you need to, you need to tear up as quickly as possible uh, or else the supervisors are going to say what's going on. We should mention at this point, I've been holding back on this, but you're a vegetarian. Yeah, since grade school. How, how did you stomach this? Th there was, Let's say there was maybe 45 minutes of which it was very surreal and gross, and I was very aware that I was tearing up very recently killed chickens. But in that context, um, you you just become desensitized so quickly. Uh, you, you either become desensitized so quickly or you leave. But the sheer pressure put on each worker in terms of the, the amount of productivity they have to do sort of takes over. So I could, spend, I could spend literally eight hours of a shift doing nothing but with my hands firmly on chicken breasts that had recently been killed and tearing them in half and smelling the meat as I tore it in half and being covered in parts of dead chickens. And the last thing on my mind was chickens. I wanted to know when the next break was. Mm. We, we, we also failed to mention that you took on the graveyard shift. So you're doing this between the hours of 12 midnight and, what, 8 in the morning? Yep. Yeah, it was my first experience doing night work, and I think that adds a whole new, a whole new level of sort of desperation. People would tell me one of the benefits of working night shifts is that you can get things done during the day. But... The thing you don't remember or that they didn't remember is if you're doing things during the day, then you're not sleeping. 
And one of the main reasons that people would get fired at the plant was because they would fall asleep. Uh, there was one mo- woman who, she she worked the night shift, and while she was working the night shift, she had paid for child care. So someone was watching her kid. But she didn't have enough money to pay for child care during the day, so she would come home exhausted right when her kid is waking up. So now she's a mom with no sleep. And the first week that I was there, she was fired uh, because she kept falling asleep. And I actually saw her. She'd be standing, and she would tuck her chin down and just go nod out for f- five minutes at a time. While standing up. While standing up. You know, I, if, if, I think if you, if you imagine how painful and helpless you feel when you're driving on a long road trip and you can't stay awake, and just, it's just a terrible feeling. Um, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that people were going through all the time. Uh, there was a, a, a way of greeting people on the night shift. When Kyle would pick me up, the guy who gave me a ride to the plant, our, our first questions to each other was, how'd you sleep last night? Or how'd you sleep during the day? Because it, it really meant, how are you? Because if you didn't sleep well, you're going to have a terrible shift. How did Kyle sound when he said that to you? Uh, Kyle was always exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm getting at his accent, actually. Oh, that's, I can't even do the... You know, I, I I very quickly realized that the southern accent is a beautiful accent I found. I loved it, um, but I will do such poor justice to it that I can't even try to keep it up. Kyle's was so thick that though you got to know him as a friend, you had his name wrong the whole time, right? I had his name wrong twice. Well, it's not really Kyle, right? It's not Kyle. First, I thought it was Gil. <laughs> and then he left a message on my machine, and then I was convinced it was Kyle. <laughs> Finally, he, he, he left a, a third message, and I realized that it was, it was n- neither Kyle nor Gil, nor was it even anything close to either of It wasn't of Carl. Names. No. What was it? Uh, the real name was Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. That's true. He was saying Jeff, and you thought he was saying Kyle? And Gil. And Gil. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's... The only reason I'm certain of this is because I took notes each night, and I start writing about how Kyle or how Gil is doing this, and then I start writing about how Kyle is doing this, and then finally I realized that his name was Jeff. So it's, it's, a, it's a heavy accent. What were you getting paid, by the way, for the job of tearing chicken breasts in half or another lovely job, the uh, tub dumper? Yeah, tub dumping was uh, you, would, you would have 70 to 80-pound tubs of, of chicken breasts, and you would reach down to be on the ground you'd pick them up and you'd walk them a little ways and dump them into a bin and you do that all day you know with no back brace or anything uh, and even though the the chicken plant was very chilly you'd be have sweat pouring down your face because you're lifting up all this heavy weight at the plant i made uh 805 an hour mm-hmm. you could make more there was one position in which you could make more which was in the live hang and killing department and you made more in that department because it was called live hang and killing you know, uh, in the orientation, the woman said uh, she apologized for not having any openings in that department because I could make more. And I said, uh, not a problem. That's <laughs> that's not exactly what I'm looking to do. Well, one uh, common denominator among all the workers you talk to, it, it seems to me from reading your book, is that they all hated it. Unlike Unlike the farm workers, whose spirits were pretty good considering how hard they were working. I think that's true. I think... You know, if you think about what makes us happy as people and what what gives us a sense of satisfaction around work, if you have some pride in your work and you think it's something that not all that many people can do as well as you can, uh, it goes a long way. And the, the lettuce workers knew that the work was very hard, but they also knew that they were pretty good at it, and they had a sense that not that many people could do what they were doing. In the poultry plant, there was not that sense. You, having never walked into a poultry plant before, could within five minutes of instruction go and do one of these jobs and be bored immediately. And so I think there's a real sense, one of my coworkers said it's uh, work a trained monkey can do. It's sort of a demeaning job that wasn't using people's uh, abilities. On, on top of that, you had a supervisor, at least one, whose, whose sole sense of her job was to wander around telling people to move faster, even when it made no sense to do so because they'd get ahead of the process and actually gum up the work sometimes by moving faster. Uh, one of my Guatemalan coworkers, he had started putting the meat on this belt slower. He had slowed the pace, and I asked him why, and he said because he could see that there was something 
about the machine that was getting clogged up. And if you put it faster, it would have problems. The supervisor walked by and said, what are you doing? You've got to keep going fast, going fast, going fast. And he points at it and tries to make a little description like it's not going to work. And I translate, you know, he's saying it's not going to work. And she's like, no, underlay, delay, on delay, let's go. So she walks away. He starts putting on fast. Uh, 20 seconds later, the supervisor yells and says, stop it, stop it, it's broken. And uh, uh, the, my coworker said, you've got six minutes now to go to the bathroom and just relax. And I said, how do you know six minutes? And he said, I've seen this before. It'll take six minutes to, to get fixed. I looked at the time, and I th- whatever time it was, six minutes later, the machine is back up and running. So you have a lot of experts in these jobs um, that actually weren't supervisors. But as that anecdote uh, you know, reveals that one of the, the things you have to put up with, and I think many people can relate to this from bad jobs they've had in their past, was not just the 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 mindless, mechanical, physically demanding part of the job, but also being told to do stupid things by people who are clueless, you know, and sometimes abusive. I mean, that does wear on you, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, there was there were these very condescending scenes where at the end of a shift, um, one of the supervisors would come by and start saying, Andale, Diego, Andale, to, to one of the workers, like, to work faster. And she would start clapping, like almost like I think she honestly thought she was encouraging him. But she was in her 20s. Diego was in his 50s. Diego's life experiences are so much richer than hers. And he knows so much more, not just about, I feel, life, but also the plant. And so he would just kind of grin and bear it and put his head down. But those are the kind of things that, um, yeah, that are very hard to put up with. Well, he's right? being treated like, uh, you know, again, the phrase beast of burden. Yeah, and like a little kid in some ways, a very kid, condescending. Or, or an animal. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you said one of the things you were interested in when you went to Alabama was how that part of the country is handling this new influx of Latin Americans who are coming to work the, you know, the hard jobs like the one you did in this poultry processing plant. And um, one of the bits of reporting you did was just pure happenstance. You, you stumbled on a gathering, a political gathering, while you were down there in Russellville, of uh, a group called the Council of Conservative Citizens. Yeah, I I had just arrived in Russellville, didn't have much to do, went online, found that that this group was meeting 20 miles from where I was at. And, um, you know, I was aware that I didn't want to be the Yankee that shows up in the South and finds some very obvious bigots and says, look at all these crazy people. But on the other hand, it was an interesting story and I had nothing else to do and I just thought I'd check it out. And what I found was a group of pretty old people, incredibly bitter people, um, who had had a history of racist beliefs against blacks, but had more recently turned their attention to the growing Latino immigrant communities in the South and in Alabama in particular. Well, I, I think it's fair to, to call these people uh, white supremacists or, or close to it. Um, among the, the things you saw in this in this gathering was uh, former Montgomery police chief, Drew Lackey, a guy who actually fingerprinted Rosa Parks when she was arrested for refusing to sit in the back of the bus, who later collared and got confessions from some Klansman types who were involved in fire bombings of... Um, civil rights activists and you know and churches and churches yeah all right he got confessions from these guys he stood up and called rosa parks a communist said kind of jubilantly or at least you know approvingly that these guys he got confessions from in these firebombings were acquitted by an all-white jury in short order yeah I drawing mean, applause from the crowd yeah i was i was sitting there and this is when i had just walked in and I had identified myself as a journalist and like, oh, yeah, come on in. You know, you're interested in immigration. We're going to be talking about that later. And um, and so he gave this talk and he, he laid out how there had been this unsolved bombings of churches, of black churches. And he his police sense made him think that a lot of times when people do this, they'll return to the scene of the crime and kind of check it out. So he went and checked it out and he saw this suspicious car driving by. And he pulled them over, and it turned out that they had explosives in the back of their car, and that they were the people who had done it. And at this point, I'm like, wow, this is interesting. This is going to be a story about this guy kind of being a decent guy. <laughs> and he he says, so they went to trial, and uh, an all-white jury acquitted all of them on all charges. And 
everyone at my table and everyone around there starts standing up and clapping. And it was just the weirdest, surreal, most surreal scene. First of all, they'd allow a journalist into this sort of gathering. But also, it's worth mentioning that we were in a hotel conference room and the people serving us food were all African-American women. I just felt very uncomfortable, you know, oh, but also just Wasn't surreal. the, the N-word being flung about now and then as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, someone stood up and, and talked about uh, biblical justifications for slavery, you know. Um, we're talking about old-school racism. Yeah, Martin Luther King is they how called they described him. Martin Luther King and, and Red, meaning communist Rosa Parks. Yeah, and the, the, I, th I would say the most striking thing of all, though, was that for the luncheon, it was actually a state assembly person um, in Alabama who represented an area near Russellville. Charles who, Bishop. Charles Bishop, who gave the uh, sort of luncheon talk, and his talk was followed by uh, someone giving the the biblical justification of slavery, and he said, "You know, it's I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, this is incredible work. You know, we need to make sure that we don't elect Barack Hussein Obama." Um, and to me, that was you know you can always find kooks in places, right? But what was really uh, sort of eye opening to me was that there was an elected representative speaking to an overtly white supremacist group. And not afraid to be seen there and, uh, you know, maybe quoted by a journalist such as yourself doing yeah. so. I and mean, then I wrote an article very quickly after on this website called Alternate that sort of created a – he had to issue like, oh, I didn't really know what they were doing. I wasn't – and what was best about he that – sure as heck did. Well, and they actually had audio recorded the whole thing. So he like he that didn't that didn't fly very well. He actually turned out to be a senator when I looked him up who had actually punched out another senator on the floor of Alabama's Senate or whatever. So he's you know, he's uh an odd guy. A loose cannon. A loose cannon. <laughs> but uh you say this now this these are mostly old people, so one might take some comfort in the fact that this is a, a dying vestige of the past. But you saw evidence that some of that kind of of uh, racism was now being focused on the new wave of, of Mexican and Guatemalan immigrants. Yeah, I think it's a real danger. You know, I think the there is a – I'm from New York. There's been a, a rash of killings of uh, Latino immigrants on Long Island. Um, I, I think there's a sense among places in the South, and not just the South, but in general, that uh, – hate crime is on the rise against Latinos. So it's something to really keep an eye on. You know, I I can't say that my time in Russellville made me feel very fearful for the immigrants that were there because I just felt like there was a lot more um, cooperation than I expected. And I think even the folks that were there at the CCC, this convention, realized that in public what they're saying is not is no longer okay. So if they're going to get together every couple months and sit in a little conference room and spew hate, and that's about the extent of it, you know, they'll be around for a few more years, and they're going to die away, and I think new new folks are coming up that don't have the same views. Well, another one of the jobs that you took on, uh, the third phase of your um, tour of duty for this year when you did these these really difficult jobs was back in New York where you live, and uh, you, you did a couple of jobs, again, uh, that primarily immigrants were doing. One was in a... Um, restaurant, and a lot, as a lot of people know, a lot of the hard work in restaurants and American restaurants these days, especially in, in many big cities and certainly in the area we live in, is done by uh, Latino workers, not by Anglo workers. But you also did this job in the Flower District of New York. Um, tell me about that job and tell me about these two bosses you had. Yeah, I, I, I took this job right after having done the chicken plant. And I had worked in two multinational corporations and was very excited about the idea of doing like a mom and pop shop, right? And flowers, it sounds just a lot more pleasant than chicken carcasses or lettuce. What I discovered was that this mom and pop shop, not only do they feel like they owned their business, which, you know, in some ways they did, but that they owned the workers that they employed there. And it was the first time uh, during my year where uh, I was under, and me and the other workers were under constant barragement. People, were, they were shouting at us all the time. They would shout at us to do one thing, and as we're doing it, they'd start shouting, what are you doing there? Um, You've got to use common sense. I can't believe you did that again. And that was a very new experience to me. It wasn't that the work was so hard. You know, if they had given us clear instructions, we could totally do this work, but... 
there was a sense that their role as a boss was to totally control our movements and to make sure we were miserable. And they succeeded in large measure. And I think, uh, I mean, two things that stuck out for me was one, it's a small shop and you have a lot of floral folks coming in and uh, it's impossible to, to miss the abuse that was going on. And yet no one ever said anything. Mm. The The second thing is just how how clearly my coworkers were wondering what I was doing there because they said they didn't have papers and so they were kind of stuck with this. Mm-hmm. But why would I want to put up with the, they called the boss, one of the bosses, my crazy abuelito, my crazy grandfather, just because we were both white. But I think it, it does point to a lot of big cities where um, you will have these sweatshops hiding in plain sight that you don't expect to find. You know, mm. uh, yeah. The, I mean, the, um, the boss he was referring to is a guy named Tony. At least you call him that in the book. And uh, whatever he told you to do, you did, and then he'd yell at you. But what was interesting is you were ultimately fired. You weren't fired because you did a bad job or because you weren't taking orders. Uh, why were you fired? I think I was fired because the main reason is that I have this sort of propensity when I'm faced with. Um, people being angry at me in a way that I think is irrational of smiling about it. Uh, and not always, not like a huge grin, but just sort of a, a small smile to mentally distance myself from the discomfort I feel. And I think that made them very uncomfortable. I think one of the, I don't think it was accidental that his instructions were so all over the place. I think it was a way for him to maintain total control over our movements. You know, if 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 he actually explained well what he wanted us to do, then he wouldn't always be there being able to barrage us and make sure we're miserable. And so I think it made him uncomfortable that I seemed to not be as miserable as he was expecting. The truth is I was miserable. After two days, I sat down with my wife, and she was I was describing the work, and she said, I don't think you're going to last two months. You know, Of all the jobs, your, your goal is two months. I don't think you're going to last two weeks. And I was honestly saying, like, I don't think I'm going to either. Um, because it was just such a different experience. When they fired me, they pulled me in and they, the reason they give, and it's it's hilarious kind of because I just come from working in a poultry plant, but they said, you're a happy chicken. You walk around with a smile on your face. <laughs> and that's not a crime, you know, but I think it was for their minds, I wasn't conforming to their version of the kind of workers they mm-hmm. wanted, which workers that were, kept their heads down and that clearly uh, did not ever try to enjoy any aspect of their lives. Mm. So in in the three cases we've talked about, the three different kinds of jobs um, that we've discussed, the lettuce fields, the slaughterhouse, and then this flower store, uh, three different kinds of difficulty, three different kinds of misery that in each case only immigrants would really put up with for very long. In the first case, it was just you know exhausting labor. In the second case, it was this kind of mind-numbing repetition mm-hmm. in a kind of factory environment and the sheer grossness of the, the poultry plant. And the th- in the third case, it was the abusiveness, the kind of emotional abusiveness of the boss. And in each case, Americans just typically won't stand for that. And and I don't think they, you know, I think one of the points is they shouldn't, but they shouldn't stand for this. The, the real mission, I think, I think what we need to do is that these jobs are always going to be done. Um, these industries really need to be cleaned up in a lot of ways. A lot of the back-of-the-house restaurant work, uh, agriculture has always been had a, a fair share of abuses. Poultry plants have always been uh, very dangerous and very repetitive work. We, we're going to need to improve these industries in a way that makes it healthier for workers. And in a lot of these industries, you actually have uh, immigrants and citizens working together. So I think one of the big tasks moving forward is figuring out ways in which you can build links between those workers to move to move the standards up. Um, but that's a huge task, you know. I, I want to talk about what you think might be the solutions and also your interest in unionization, which comes out in the book, and I guess you're doing some work related to unions right now. But before we do, let's ask some of the obvious political questions here, revolving around immigration mm-hmm. and illegal immigrants especially. The arguments by those who uh, want to see a crackdown on immigration are that, number one, that uh, immigrants are taking American jobs. Now, your book and other studies make the case. I know it's arguable, and there's another side to the argument, that that's really not happening. These are jobs Americans won't do. Another argument is that, well, 
they're taking jobs that Americans won't do, and therefore they are enabling this kind of abusive system to go on, mm-hmm. right? If, 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 if immigrants will take all this crap, you know, whether it's incredibly low wages, dangerous conditions, abusive behavior by bosses, that perpetuates the system. Right. What's your feeling about that? I think you have to look at it less as an immigration issue and more as a labor issue. Mm-hmm. So one way to think about how corporations view workers and how they view undocumented immigrants is to think about that's how they'd like to treat all workers, right? They'd like to have all workers kind of afraid. They'd like to have all workers um, hesitant to stand up for their rights. Anyone that's worked for Walmart knows that problems of squeezing workers as hard as possible is not a, just an immigrant issue. But a lot of this could be fixed just by enforcing labor laws on the books, right? So in in New York City as a delivery worker, people are making $2 an hour. Way below minimum wage. Way below no minimum wage. Imagine if you had a huge crackdown on restaurant workers. And some of it's happened in New York City. There have been a couple multi-million dollar cases of of delivery workers recovering uh, $300,000 a person. I think that's really the way to view this issue is that if you don't allow labor standards to be degraded, if you enforce labor standards across the board for whoever's working, I think that's a big solution. Let me do an about face and, and, and try a different set of arguments. It's, it's a good thing that immigrants are willing to do this hard work for low wages because that's how we get cheap food and cheap services. The reason I can go to the store and buy that lettuce at an affordable rate and so many other food products in the great bread basket that is America, and and even on a low wage, I can still feed my family, is because of that cheap labor. That's a good thing, right? Well, I think you have to start thinking about what the value of cheap, you know, and this is a much bigger picture than just immigrants or workers and that, you know, you could have even cheaper lettuce if they paid five-year-olds a nickel an hour, right? But at a certain point, you have to have some sort of sense that in the United States, if you work, you should be able to create a relatively comfortable life for yourself. So I think there needs to be ways to to rethink um, just how important cheap is in certain ways. Well, I'm not sure what you would define as a living wage, but maybe you can tell me, if we were to hike the wages of farm workers and, and food workers and, and uh, people working in slaughterhouses and, and meat processing, uh, up to a level that you consider reasonable, how much would food prices go up? Well, there, there's one study that, that came out by a really respected academic out of UC Davis, and he looked at vegetables. And he looked at how much the typical family spends on vegetables for a year. And it's actually not a huge amount, Right. And he, he factored in what if you raise the wages of the farm workers harvesting vegetables by 40%, which is a huge jump for them. And he looked at the average yearly spending that that would impact on your typical family's vegetable uh, purchase. And it was something in the realm of maybe $120 a year. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it was very modest. So I think there are ways in which you imagine, oh, you're paying the farm workers a little bit more money, and now you're mm-hmm. going to be paying $40 for a head of lettuce. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way the economics mm-hmm. of it works. It sounds like wages of the, the low-level workers like that may not be a big factor in the pricing of the ultimate food. There may be many other costs that are swamping the effect of, of, of wages. There are, and it's, 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 it's also the issue that um, when you have a sort of race to the bottom, that, that extra amount that you might pay – um, which is still very modest. If you don't have a sense among people that are purchasing food that that's an important priority, then of course another company can come in and undercut them, right? But I think we have shown that people that have some means to do so will pay more money for things that they think are important. So local food, organic food. I think food's a great example because there's so much energy around food right now. Is there any way that consumers um, can look for food made by people who are well compensated? No. I mean, the, the, the sad truth of it is, like, let's say you go into a grocery store and you say you want the lettuce that was harvested by the UFW. Yeah. They don't have any contracts, mm-hmm. right? I want the grapes where, that are harvested by um, union work. They just don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. There, there is not a strong farm worker movement right now. It doesn't mean that one couldn't happen. But I think one of the very promising aspects, and this isn't from the worker issue, but from for food, 
is just from the consumer issue of of people starting to look at food in a much more serious way. But it's a huge jump from I'm worried about food because I want my kid to eat healthy or I'm worried about food because I want it to be good for the environment to I'm worried about food because I care about the workers that are harvesting this food. You currently do work uh, related to unionization? Yeah, I work as a researcher at uh, Service Employees International Union Local 32BJ in uh, New York City. So I support doing research, supporting organizing drives of security officers in in New York City. And also I'm just starting to move into uh, helping organize food service workers in schools that serve serve meals to kids. So you're a union organizer. I am. You are. In the book you write about unions, and um, the story that, that comes out repeatedly is that unions, since their heyday in previous decades, you know, are, are, have been in decline. Mm-hmm. And even though the kinds of conditions that gave rise to the unions, you know, r- brutal labor conditions, low wages, and other kinds of, of things, in a, in a sense are, 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 are alive and well the unions as a solution are not in many cases. Um, for instance, the slaughterhouse you worked in, in uh, Alabama, they're actively anti-union. They're constantly indoctrinating, I think it's a fair statement, oh, for their sure. workers to reject unionization. Right. I mean, they made you watch videos that painted the unions as dangerous and all of that. I think that there was something implicit that you might get in trouble if you right. did vote for, for unionization. Um what what became of the American unions, in your opinion? I know it's a big question, but yeah. what went wrong? They get too big, too fat, too uh, – they lose sight of their, their their real mandate? I think there was a, a – a, they de-emphasized organizing. And mm-hmm. as soon as you stop organizing, you start dying, right? Um, and then there were just big structural issues. So I think they got complacent. They got much more interested in servicing the workers that they had and less interested in organizing new workers. Um but I think another big piece that is sort of independent of the labor movement's failings is that the global economy um, shifts a lot of work overseas. So the, the the union that I work with, the Service Employees International Union, they're very specifically targeting workers whose work can't be shipped overseas. It's very hard to do it from one factory to another. You have to have the because if you don't do it broad, someone's just going to undercut you. Sure, and it's a huge task. Sure, I mean in the, in the old days, the the heyday that I was referring to, if 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 a major union said we're going to do a sit down strike, they could shut down an industry. Right. Today, the industry can shift its operations to a non unionized area, and it's it's easy. There's also a problem though, that you describe of, of the workers themselves seeing the unions as unhelpful or even, um, you know, their enemies. Yeah. I, I mean, in the, in, the, in the South, there was, a, among a lot of locals, there was a distrust of unions. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the main concerns was they had become convinced that if a union came in, uh, that the plant might shut down. Okay. Right? okay. So that was a real they've got one very crappy job, but it's the job they have. Is there some reasonable basis for that kind of fear when you can ship jobs offshore so easily? Not not in the context of that. I mean, what they were talking about was getting a little bit better health care benefits and a wage of an hour or two and having a way to challenge unfair firings. So not really. I think this was more um there are other plants in Alabama that are unionized that have those things that are doing fine. Um but I, I think the, the, the powerful story that companies would tell is that if you bring a union in, you no longer have direct access to us. You have to go through unions. Um, and we have an open-door policy. One, and you'll pay union dues. Yeah, you'll pay union dues. One of, one of the people I worked with said, well, they have an open-door policy with closed ears. You know, they'll come in and you can say, hey, you know what? I think I should make $4 more an hour. And they'll say, okay, well, I'm glad you uh, shared that with me. Mm. And that's it, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I realize that we've shifted from immigration as an issue to, to labor organizing as an issue. I wanted to go back to immigration for one more moment because it, it is such an important part of your book. And uh, another argument that's used by the anti-immigration side of the debate, and that is that, that immigrants, especially illegal Im- immigrants, consume a lot of services, public services. You heard this a lot in Alabama, for mm-hmm. instance, the idea that immigrants got a lot of special treatment. And don't pay into the system. Mm-hmm. Want to confront that one? 
Oh, I mean, I think uh, in many ways immigrants were paying all the taxes that they that they, that anyone else was paying. It was especially ironic in in Alabama because Alabama has this history of of paying almost no taxes. Mm. You know, someone talked to me about I think the taxes that she paid in this huge house and the yard was something like thirteen dollars a year. But I think it stems more from a sense that the the locals that I worked with need more services. You know, they're very poor. They don't have access to much. Their education was not great. And they're in a situation where they need a lot of government assistance. They hear stories about immigrants coming in and having undocumented immigrants having access to all these services, which, of course, they don't. And I would ask them to point to the services, and they can't because they don't exist. But I would say it's less about an anger at immigrants and more about a sense that they feel like they're being shafted, and they rightly feel like they're being shafted. And to say, well, they're just racist because they like they blame immigrants for everything, I think misses a picture, which is that these people have been suffering for a long time, and they need a lot of assistance. And immigrants, you watch the nightly news or whatever, and immigrants seem to be uh, living off largesse. My, my own view on what, what you see is that immigrants were incredibly hard workers, and almost everyone I met, it was very ironic, even the undocumented immigrants were paying taxes because they had... It was all taken out of their paycheck. It was all taken out of their paycheck, but they would also have social security numbers that they were using from Puerto Ricans that were retired in Puerto Rico. And so they were paying into all the social security benefits. So they're... And, and studies just bear this out, that the amount of services, they don't qualify for all sorts of public benefits, and the amount of services they use compared to what they contribute... Um, are just much less. That is a fascinating point that you just made and that you made in your book. That in those cases where they're, you know, they're they're not paid under the counter, where withholdings are taken, taxes are taken, they're paying into the social security system. These undocumented workers, they're never going to get that back because they're illegal or undocumented. They cannot draw Social Security. They're paying into Social Security. They'll never get it back. In a strange way that I've never heard reported, they are helping to prop up the Social Security system by paying in and not taking out. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a huge surplus. I can't remember the number of billion dollars a year it's that billions. it's helping to prop it up. Yeah. Um, but but that all that money, basically what happens is when they're using a Social Security number that doesn't correspond to anyone, that just goes straight to the U.S. Treasury. Have you ever sat down and thinking about those those months that you spent working in the lettuce fields and in the um, in the slaughterhouse? How many heads of lettuce and how many chicken carcasses you processed? No, um, <laughs> I mean I, I I think I probably did about twenty five hundred a shift of of heads of lettuce, and so I did that for eight weeks. So that's you know. Who knows? Forty days. It's 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 pretty crazy. The the chicken is even crazier, especially when you talk about how many tons of the the tubs that I would dump each shift. But I never did. I couldn't get beyond the day. <laughs> I'd do the day thing, and I'd be like, okay, that's enough. I don't really need to know. Can I see your hands? Healthy. I don't see any calluses. No, no. This is a this is the the new life for me. Is uh, what I did before, which is reading and writing and talking about the work. You know. One of the most striking consequences of the work I did that I never realized was just how much you rely on hands. And when your hands are sore, how how everything becomes... I mean, I would wake up at night just from swollen hands and how often you use your hands to shake hands and do all these things. And I had a just uh, a real, again, one of those things where how privileged I am that my hands aren't always sore. And I would have never thought of that before. It's like, you don't think about how great it is to not have something in your eye until you have something in your eye, mm. you know. Do you ever have any dreams of being back in the uh, poultry plant or in the uh, lettuce fields? I don't anymore. I had I had uh, many dreams about doing lettuce work, and in these dreams, I would be working as hard as possible and couldn't keep up. And uh, and in the chicken plant as well, I'd have dreams of having to tear chicken breast in half as fast as possible and not being able to do it and wake up kind of in a panic and then realize like, hey, I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn, you know, but um, it fades, you know, as much as I say that it it changes me and and I think about these issues a lot more. um, I think it's just human nature that as you get further away from it, you have to work a lot harder to remember 
that when you're eating a taco that has shredded lettuce in it, that someone very much like the coworkers that I worked with bent down and, and harvested that for my benefit. Mm. Well, Gabriel, thank you. Hey, it's been great. Thank you. Gabriel Thompson. His latest book is Working in the Shadows, a year of doing the jobs most Americans won't do. You can learn more at workinginthashadows.wordpress.com. And you can learn more about this program at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. There you'll find the latest audio from our show, archived shows, and more. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon, right here on KUSP.